Welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Michael Dunford, a PhD candidate at Queen Mary University of London. We will discuss his copyright scholarship and his role as an educator on Twitter. So welcome to the show, Mike. Thanks, Brian. It's great to be here. I'm, I'm really excited to have you on. As you know, I've been following you on Twitter for a long time, and you're one of my favorite voices in the copyright sphere, and I always look forward to hearing what, what you have to say. Um, for my own benefit and for the benefit of listeners, I wonder if you could start the show by talking a little bit about yourself, sort of what was your background and what was your path to becoming a copyright scholar? Oh, Lord, that's kind of a long story, but um, and a little bit of a uh, contorted one. So, um, you know, I'm in my mid 40s for most of my adult life, probably a good, oh, 15 years, maybe a little bit more. I was actually the primary caregiver for our kids and just catching up on college. Uh, my undergrad took, oh, about a dozen years here and there getting caught up and doing what work I could around my wife's career. Um, she's in the military. She's a physician. So somebody had to be around to kind of get the homework done and that kind of thing. Um, I was originally actually planning a career in the sciences, uh, got through undergrad, got a PhD started. And right when the military was packing us up and moving, I also had the Endangered Species Act destroy about two years of my preparation for a research plan seemed like a good time to kind of rethink things. You know, everything was adding up to that. And I was got interested in the whole ESA process. And I was like, you know, maybe I could do the environmental law thing, that kind of thing. Start law school, think ah, contracts are going to be all loopholes and boring and the price you pay for going to law school. And I'm just going to do the environmental law thing. And then I discovered that contract law absolutely fascinates me and I love it. And administrative law, which is a huge amount of environmental, maybe not quite so much. Um, and then right when all that was happening, I had the uh, good fortune to um, get a research assistant position with uh, then Professor Danielle Conway. She's now dean in uh, Pennsylvania, I think. Um, but working on intellectual property with her and just kind of caught the bug from there. Mm -hmm. Well, so... I know that you're working on a PhD now. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your research, uh, what you're focusing on, and sort of like in a big picture sense, the sort of thesis of your of your dissertation. Sure. So, uh, you know, well, let's see. I started out by thinking I'm going to try to become the one to solve the fan works problem in copyright law. And after about three months of reading and four months of reading, I, I said, you know what, uh, maybe I don't want to become the 978th person to fail to solve the fan works problem in copyright law. Maybe a more interesting question might be, what are the barriers that have kept us from being able to solve that problem? Uh, so I'm looking at that and I'm kind of taking a comparative approach to that. So I'm looking at the problem, not just from an American perspective, uh, but from across the common law uh, traditions, looking at the law in, in the UK, looking at the law in Canada, that kind of thing, and seeing if I can patch together something. Because 
the fan works problem is a problem everywhere, but it seems to be a problem, at least on the surface, for slightly different reasons everywhere. So I'm trying to kind of dig down and find the common root causes. Mm. So in, in your reading, which scholars have you found particularly helpful in thinking about or better understanding the fan works problem? Um, well, I mean, Rebecca Tushnet's the start point for everybody, isn't she? Uh, I mean, she basically invented the field with that 1997 paper. Um, but beyond that, um, Casey, I think it's Fiesler. It might be Fiesler. I, I still haven't learned how to pronounce her name, unfortunately, at Colorado has done quite a lot of interesting work. Um, you know, Whitman, Lipton, uh, Stacy Lantain. I mean, there's so many wonderful voices in this area. I'm going to get in trouble by missing a couple of them on the U.S. side. Uh, yeah, not I'm, as, I, yeah. I'm a big fan of Betsy Rosenblatt's. Yeah, I've read some of hers too. Yeah. Uh, I, I, there's so many good people working in this area. Um, on the UK side, there's not as many people, but uh, Yinhorn Lee, who's up in Nottingham, has done some interesting work. Um, and then, well, he doesn't publish nearly as much as everybody else thinks he should. My supervisor, uh, Gaetano Demita, has done a lot uh, kind of in the video game law sphere. Um, so I've got a lot of good sources that I can kind of start to bring together there. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you think your initial contribution in this area is going to be. I mean, you said you're interested in sort of why we can't solve the problem. That's a big kind of meta way of looking at the issue. What are your what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I think a lot of it, and this is something that a lot of people have kind of hit on from different directions. So, I mean, if nothing else, I'm hoping that I can be able to at least really start to pull the different strands that people have done together into one place. Um, it's the wonderful thing about a PhD. I mean, it's really weird. It's an awful process in a lot of ways, but it's this luxury of having, you know, a solid three or four years to just dive all the way into one project and write something that's not 20,000 words, but it's a hundred thousand words. You get a lot more ability to start to pull things Together. So what I'm sort of hoping is that I can look at where, where we've had suggestions that haven't worked out. And to my mind, for a lot of them, it kind of boils down to we've been trying to apply law to ordinary people. That just doesn't it, – it was never intended to apply to ordinary people. Um, there have been – I'm still working on why have the suggestions for getting around that not worked. And I'm kind of leaning toward maybe we need an entire different framework, but that's kind of the, that's the next four months. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I know that, you know, you're always someone I look to for kind of interesting and helpful thoughts on copyright doctrine and how it works. So I wonder if you think that, copyright doctrine might in some ways be part of the problem here. I've got flattered to hear that because I've been reading your stuff, I think probably for a lot longer than you've been reading mine, but um, I don't know that the problem is copyright doctrine as much as what we're trying to make the doctrine do. Um, you know, it, it's not a perfect doctrine for the analogy I keep coming back to and using more and more is that copyright really it's industrial regulation law. Uh, at its very core, that's what it's supposed to be. And as a body of industrial regulation law, maybe it ain't perfect, but it could be a lot worse. 
when you start to make that into a law of household torts, that's where it gets a little bit iffy. So is that part of what you're going to be engaging with and thinking about in your in your dissertation? I think so, yeah. Um, again, I mean, a lot of the dissertation is really going to be kind of a review of the situation and attempt to really just consolidate the strands of scholarship that have been done and try to, you know, do what you do when you're editing a film or a podcast or something like that and just make all these different things look a little bit more coherent, but it's a legal thing. You got to have your own conclusion. So yeah, I think that's where I'm going to be leaning toward is that we just, we've got to find some way to come up with something that works for everyday people and probably copyright as we've always known it ain't that. Mm. Well, so Mike, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about where your interest in fan works came from and how your personal experiences might inform your scholarship. I mean, I've always been pretty online. Uh, you know, if nothing else, it was something to do uh, while the baby was napping and that kind of thing. Uh, you can't be very online for large chunks of time and not be a bit of a geek, right? Uh, you start to and then you start to pick up on what people are doing you start to see that yeah this is stuff where there's nothing copyright about it there's nothing unusual about it it's how people read in a lot of ways it's how they engage works um and it's it's normal processes and all of a sudden all these normal processes that we used to do on our own time i mean you know when i was in sixth grade i drew really bad uh, versions of cartoon characters on the brown paper covers on my textbooks. If I was doing it now, I'd probably put them on DeviantArt. Only difference between the two that I can see is that the copyright owner isn't probably going to see my brown paper notebook and probably will see the, you know, DeviantArt if they look hard enough. And why should that really make any kind of fundamental difference? Um, you know, when, why shouldn't people be able to keep doing the things they've always done um, more to the point, why shouldn't people have the ability to know that, yes, they can keep doing the things they've always done? Because, I mean, we're still doing them. We just have no legal certainty about whether we're allowed to or not anymore. Yeah. I mean, it does seem like an odd area where, as you say, the law has stayed the same even as the world has changed. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. it it's... I mean, there have been some tweaks around the edges. DMCA was a big one. Uh, Canada wrote some uh, wrote a copyright exception in for user-generated content. Um, so actually, in, in, in some ways, it's more been our law has been staying the same, and it tends to be the law that governs a lot by default. Um, other places have actually been a little bit more expansive on uh, taking steps that'll help out with preserving the freedoms, even though those haven't been perfect either. I mean, parody is completely different in Europe than it is in the U.S. is a good example. Uh, we're kind of constrained by, can we convince a judge that we are commenting on the original, not just on something else? And Europe said, ah, nah, nah, as long as it's different from the original and it's commenting on something and there's a little bit of humor there, it's parody. Well, so one, one thing to change gears a little bit, one thing I'm, I'm really interested in is your decision to pursue uh, a PhD and especially to pursue a, a PhD 
outside the United States is really interesting and kind of unusual and something that I don't know that many people who have done. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your decision to do that and sort of what your experiences have been like. Has it, has it been a good experience for you? Yeah, it's been a wonderful experience. Um, part of it, like a lot of things in my life, I more stumbled into it uh, by chance than anything else. Um, right when I finished law school, we got my wife got orders for England. Uh, really hard to get a job there as a brand new American qualified lawyer. Uh, so an LLM looked like a really good idea just to avoid a, a CV gap. Um, and as it turned out, while I was doing the LLM in one thing, um, which wasn't intellectual property related, it was you know, international commercial litigation. It seemed like a good idea at the time. Um, it may not have been. I bumped into uh, Professor Demita, who's my supervisor now. We started talking about the problems one thing led to another. Uh, I mean, that's a one way to put it. Another way, though, is that I know that for going into academics in the U.S., um, a lot of people have been looking at, you know, JD and a PhD in a different area. And I did think about that, but I also kind of thought that it might be really interesting to just keep doing law and doing it in the academic framework um, that working well in other places. And I think I've actually picked up a lot there that I, I hope at some point I'd be able to bring back across and bring in. I, you know, it's, it's this shocking thing where all of a sudden there's massive attention to things like, what is your research method? Uh, why is this a good research method for the questions you're asking? Um, why isn't something else a better one? Uh it, it's a lot more of a conventional academic field. And that does kind of change the way you look at things a little. I wonder if you could talk about that a little more. I mean, do you feel like your perspective on legal scholarship and on doing legal scholarship has changed during the course of your time in the PhD program that you're doing? Yeah, I think it's inevitable because again, you've got this three years on one project um, and then, of course, you've also got the the mandatory kind of training and research methods and things like that. Um, but I do find myself um, it, it's one of the, it's hard to describe. I mean, how do you describe the difference in how you read before one L and how you read after one L? Uh, to a certain extent, there's some of that kicking in, um, but you do tend to kind of look at the research, um, not just in terms of the persuasive value of the writing and the use of the sources, but also on kind of what was the methodology behind the approach? Uh, why are they bringing the sources to bear that they are? Um, and so on. You, you focus somewhat more on the, the decisional process that you're looking at. So I know your dissertation is focused primarily on the fanworks problem. I wonder if you've thought about where you think your scholarship will will go next, right? Are there are there problems you're kind of charting out in the future to be asking yeah. and answering? There's a few different problems. Uh some of them are a little bit more bite-size uh things areas that we haven't looked at so much. Uh political speech and fair use is a large one for me. Um, there's, I've got part of a chapter on that, but I'd love to be able to expand that. Um, and then kind of more on the fan relevant side, I did, um, the masters that you do is kind of a lead into the PhD I did on fictional universes. 
uh, published one paper on it, hate the paper, really want to go back and take another swing at the problem. Uh, so that's something else there. And then, I mean, it's fandom and fan works. There's always going to be something coming in this area. Yeah. You just well, so don't I, know what. So I looked at that paper and I thought it was really interesting. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what, what you're disappointed about, about that paper, what you would do differently uh, if you had it to do over or probably more realistically, what would you do differently or what do you plan on doing differently in your future scholarship? Uh, it was descriptive. Uh, it was a lot more descriptive than I was really hoping for. Some of that was time and length pressures. I mean, it's only about half of the the dissertation for the MA. Um, and I really wanted to get more in do more to kind of focus on the policy implications. Uh, I spend a lot of time talking in that paper about why fictional universes, when push comes to shove, are probably going to be protected under U.S. law. And what I really wanted to do is a lot more on and why that's going to be dumb and why that's going to be harmful and what can we do instead? How can we rework things to maybe provide some protection for it because I don't think it's completely unwarranted or at least it's no worse than um, protecting a fictional character. Mm -hmm. uh, but how do we do that and still preserve creative space for uh, other people who are coming in? Well, shifting gears a little bit, you've become a really prominent voice on Twitter educating people about copyright law, copyright doctrine, how it works and what it means. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about kind of how that happened. Uh, well, that takes a sort of, I don't know how much you want to get into the world's uh, lunatic, most lunatic lawsuit. Um, but a couple of years ago, there was a thing that happened on Twitter where uh, some lawyer in Texas um, was representing an anime voice actor who had been kind of credibly accused of sexual harassment by former colleagues and things and decided to respond by suing them for defamation. And his lawyer sent out the all-time worst retraction demand. I mean, it had things in it like, um, you have called my client a POS. Uh, this is false and defamatory because it is not physically possible to be feces. And uh, somebody pinged that to, I think it was Akiva's attention, and then uh, Popet got it, and, you know, the rest of the whole Twitter crowd got it, and everybody went, wait, what? Um, I mean, you know, for any non-lawyer who might be listening, this is the kind of thing that's not just wrong about defamation wrong law, it's wrong everywhere on planet Earth. There is no country where it is defamatory to call somebody that because it's a literal untruth. Uh, so we picked up on that. And then the next thing we know, we're all flooded with fans of that anime voice actor who are telling us that we're wrong and pointing us at the two lawyers who have apparently been leading the harassment campaign against the victims of this guy. And one thing led to another. And, you know, to, to my sometimes shame, I'm one of those lawyers who will not walk away when 89 people are trying to explain to me why something I know is true is completely wrong. So I, I started trying to explain patiently to them what what the reality was. And the next thing I know, I've picked up followers and then picked up more followers kind of with the election and that kind of thing. But it did most kind of on a more serious note lead me to realize that um, there are a lot of people who are really interested in this stuff. They start to recognize that it's got real world implications for them. 
and they've just never had a real opportunity to learn about it. Um, and if you're patient and you're willing to explain things and try to maybe explain it two or three times to find the way that's going to fit the puzzle piece into somebody's head just right, uh, it turns out people like that and some people will follow you. I haven't figured it out, but it seems to be a thing. So that's really interesting to me. And I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about how you see your role as an educator on Twitter. I, I mean, there's no secret that I want to get into legal academics at some point, but unlike a lot of legal academics, and I've got nothing against research, I enjoy my own research, teaching's my true love. Um, I, I really enjoy that opportunity to try to not just learn something myself, but convey it to someone else. So if somebody is willing to ask questions and listen, I'm going to try to take the time. I mean, I think there's a lot of people in my life in the past I'd be repaying poorly if I didn't do that. Um, and then there's a little bonus that I enjoy it and it's kind of fun. So, and it's also something that I don't think enough of us take seriously as a professional responsibility. And maybe we should a little bit more. Um, it's not like it used to be. I mean, at this point, if somebody files a complaint in a lawsuit, uh, it's not just going to be a couple of news articles about that. The complaint itself is going to be out there. People are going to try to read it, and they're not going to understand what international shoe is or why why does international shoe matter to a defamation case in Washington, D.C. involving election machines and that kind of thing. Um and it, you know, I sort of feel like if we're really kind of part of that whole, if we're officers of the court, we're kind of a part of that third branch of government. Um, it's on us to an extent to make sure that there's real access to it for people. And if there's information people don't have about things, they don't really have real access. You can read a filing, but if you can't find somebody to help you understand the basics, what's the point? Well, so one of the things I really like about your Twitter feed is how incredibly patient and giving you are with your time, like explaining things to people and helping them better understand, like you just described. I, I wonder if you could say a little something about sort of where you think that quality in you might have come from and whether you think that informs your scholarship at all. Oh, it totally does. I mean, I'm a red, I'm a red diaper baby uh, uh, when you get right down to it. I'm actually from the same uh, little crowd of children of uh, hippies in the Bronx that uh, produced Chris Hayes and a couple of other people there. Um, the whole it takes a village thing really kind of it hits home for me because uh, it wasn't just like there was one person or two people who were helping do that kind of thing. It was just such a wonderful crowd of adults all of whom made that kind of effort to be really patient with all of the kids, help us all develop, help us all learn, and and raise us really in that. I mean, my mother was students for a democratic society at Fordham in the 60s. My father's Viet Vets Against War. Uh, I might be a little more conservative than them, but some of that definitely is going to rub off. Mm -hmm. Well, so, I mean, how do you see that perspective informing your scholarship and the way you think about copyright law, if at all? I, I mean, you got to start with the people. Um, you absolutely have to start with the people. And this isn't, 
this was also informed, I think, a lot by going to law school in Hawaii, where, uh, I mean, William S. Richardson, who's the namesake of the law school there, was the activist judge's activist judge. Uh, You know, I mean, his court, I think, is the only one in history ever to have a federal court say, yeah, that's actually a judicial taking. Um, And, you know, the the state went back to him and said, hey, they said it's a judicial taking. And, you know, the court said, "Okay, pay them. Uh, We're not changing back. Uh, If the feds say you have to pay them, you have to pay them. We're not going to go change things back. Um, And his his judicial philosophy was always informed by you've got to look at not just what does the law say, but how is the law going to do the right thing for people? Um, and that that's really informed a lot of that. Um, and the way that I see it, if the law is going to do the right thing for people, people have to be able to kind of learn what the law is and how to access it and what it means to them. Mm. Uh, so, you know, I kind of add that perspective to that whole, I was brought up to take the time and be patient by people who were taking the time and being patient. And I guess that's what you get. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, so Mike, in in closing, I wonder, I, I have this kind of big picture question for you, right? So I wonder, like, if you were in charge, right? If we made you register of copyrights or we made you the person who was in charge of steering copyright policy, like, what do you think we should be doing differently? Like, what bothers you the most about copyright law? What would you change and why would you change it? Uh, Again, I think I would start with a focus on, you know, let's start with fair use being an affirmative defense. I mean, if I've got to do it as small tweaks and not uh, let's nuke the entire system from orbit and start again on the glassy plane we've just created, uh, let's start with fair use as an affirmative defense. Um, You know, I've read quite a bit of of work in this area. I think John Terranian's done some persuasive work on that and a few others pointing to it wasn't a creative defense to be er, creative defense. I'm sorry. It wasn't a affirmative defense to begin with. It was um, a definition of what's not infringing. Uh, and we got to go back to that. I think um, if only to give people a fair chance at getting into the system. Another thing there, um, I don't like the CASE Act, but I would really love to see um, public defender equivalents for people who are non-commercial creators who are accused of uh, infringement, Uh, particularly in the DMCA context where the DMCA takedown notice winds up effectively closing the whole thing because who can possibly afford to litigate? Um, You know, let's stop letting people expand copyright just by creating these norms based on their own threats. Uh, But I mean, that, that would be the small ball. The big ball is really let's figure out what users rights are and let's get them down in black and white. Mm, mm, mm. So to make copyright conform to what people actually do, what people actually want, what people actually think. Yeah, so this is the problem I ha- where I kind of keep hitting into barriers when I'm talking to other copyright people, because I I don't like viewing it that way because that's viewing it inside the copyright paradigm. What I really want is for us to be saying, no, 
let's take freedom of expression a little bit more seriously. Let's take creators' rights a little bit more seriously. And if we're going to talk about balancing somebody's rights against a copyright holder's rights, how do you do that when the copyright holder has their rights sitting? I mean, one of those binders behind me has got Title 17, and it's all out there in black and white. And the other half we're balancing against is vapor. I mean, it's not written anywhere. It's just these airy concepts. If you're going to balance something, I, I love airy concepts. Don't get me wrong. I'm a big fan. But you can't balance something against them very well. Mm. Well, Mike, thanks so much for coming on the show. It was a real pleasure talking to you. And um, I encourage everyone to check out your scholarship and especially to follow you on Twitter. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. I really enjoyed it. Got six months in jail, my back turned to the wall, fanning that thing was a 